0: We are in Acts chapter eighteen this morning. Acts eighteen, and we have been trying to highlight a word or two that we see in the book of Acts. That is the resurrection. That word, or some form of that word, is found at least thirty times in the book, and we've seen many times where Paul brings that up in a a, uh, sermon. Or, and actually, if you think about it, going forward, he's going to bring that up when he's on trial. He's going to bring up the resurrection of Jesus when he's on trial. One thing I wanted to note about that, how important it is, and sometimes we perhaps maybe take it for granted, but if you look at the world's population, there are 70% today, 70% of the world's population that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as given in the New Testament. That's astounding, isn't it? 70% of the world does not believe that. And even the 30% that would confess or profess a, some type of Christianity, of those, they don't really believe fully the, the biblical account of the resurrection. Shows us the importance of talking about the resurrection. That's why Paul, I think, emphasized that so much. It is part of the gospel. And also, as we get into Acts chapter 18, I want you to, as we look out over the whole book of Acts, I want you to realize and see this book for what it is, and it's a historical book, but we see in it the the blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to preach the gospel. Even today, as we go into Corinth, Paul spent a year and a half there, and then he follows up with a A book such as 1 Corinthians where he has to correct them on so many things, and that would probably be frustrating to a preacher to spend that much time at a congregation and then have to follow up and correct so many things that are wrong. Think about all the, the work that it takes in the trenches, so to speak, all that work that it takes day after day, one step at a time. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts what it takes to spread the gospel to the world. It's not, by men's definitions, it's not, certainly not a glory, uh, a position of glory at all. <clears throat> all right, let's get into uh, our review for this week. We're doing chapter summaries and chapter, well, I guess it helps I turn that on, Acts Chapter 13 is Barnabas and Paul selected to go on the first journey. The first place to go is Cyprus, and then in chapter 14, what do we see? Part of the first journey, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. I'm not going to put them up yet. I'm testing your memory here. Chapter 15, circumcision discussion at Jerusalem. That's Acts 14 and Acts 15. Acts 15 is not really part of the first journey per se, but uh, it occurs there in between. The second journey, which we typically call, we begin at chapter 16 in Philippi. Paul and Silas are there imprisoned for the gospel. And then what happened in chapter 17 last week? Paul is at Athens, and he has the opportunity to preach at Mars Hill, one of the notable things that occurs there. Uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and then Athens. Remember, we're talking about people, places, and events. We really want to focus on cities when we get to the missionary journeys. We want to focus on those cities because that helps us to remember what happened in those particular cities those particular cities and then chapter 18 would be what Corinth and what are two major characters in that chapter Aquila Priscilla we're going to we're introduced to them there and we're going to see more about them later so we have Corinth Aquila and Priscilla and let's take a quick peek ch- next week chapter 19 will be about Ephesus And we're introduced to Ephesus here in this chapter, but more about that later in Acts chapter 19, and then we'll see the riot in Ephesus. All right, let's review our map as well. Let's go over to the left-hand corner. We're looking at, we've been to Thessalonica, Berea. Now Paul in Acts chapter 17 went down to Athens. There noted on your map, you see the line there. And then he will go over to Corinth here in chapter 18. All right, let's read Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, he departed from Athens and came to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a man of Pontus by race, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came unto them, Pontus, where Aquila is from is mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Those people that were there on the day of Pentecost, some of them were from the area of Pontus. Perhaps it is that he was from or he was there at that time, but it is interesting to note that. Also, in the, the book of Acts, many times Luke will give a character or something that can be authenticated even today. We can look at Claudius and his reign in Rome and we can see we can uh, substantiate that he was there and the things that he did and we can but Luke almost drops a line there very quickly but we can through archaeology and other things verify these things which further authenticates the Bible for you and I. Luke doesn't spend time dwelling on that, but that is interesting and and so good for us to be able to do that today. Now, he goes to stay with Aquila and Priscilla, and what is the reason for his staying with them in particular? They're tent makers. He's a tent maker. We can work together and benefit one another. Perhaps Paul is at a time where he needs to make more money to provide for himself, So he does so, he stays with them, and they make tents, but he doesn't just strictly do that. Verse 4, he does what in addition to that? Apparently, he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews. He persuades Jews and Greeks as well in the synagogue. So he doesn't strictly go one direction or another, tent making or preaching, he does both. Why don't you stop and think for just a minute about how many churches there are in this country that could benefit from having a man that would be willing to preach and work at the same time. There are so many, pre, uh, so many congregations around this country that would benefit from having somebody that would come in and be willing to have a secular job and to preach at the same time. And I, Paul gives us a good example of that here. In this paragraph as well, he's willing to work and support himself and preach the gospel at the same time when necessary. All right, well, let's continue verse 5. Silas and Timothy have come. Remember, they've separated partly because the persecution that they faced. Paul was the target of a lot of that persecution. So he leaves behind Silas and Timothy at various places and they have come down from Macedonia here verse 5 Paul is constrained by the word he's he uh, cannot but speak but preach he must testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ verse 5 that is a very big sticking point again with the Jews verse 5 that the Jews to preach it to the Jews that Jesus is the anointed one they were always looking for an anointed one in the old testament Paul is saying he is that anointed one, but they rejected that by and large. Verse 6, when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook out his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. We saw that, uh, I believe, in chapter 13 where Paul preached to Antioch. Pretty much the same type of reception there. So, So many of the Jews rejected it. And they said, lo, we turn unto the Gentiles. Same situation here. Verse 7, he departed from here and went into the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, one that worshiped God, whose house joined apparently right next to the synagogue. Would that be a convenient place for Paul to be if he wants to preach? Yes and no. Yes, if you want to preach, but no, if you want to be persecuted, if you don't want to be persecuted. His house is right next to the synagogue, and lo and behold, in verse 8, who from the synagogue believes and is baptized? Crispus. Now, if Crispus does, do you think that would, would have... Some impact upon the others attending services at a synagogue. Notice, uh, as we've pointed out a few times in Acts, how many were with Crispus in this belief and baptism? He and his household. The ruler of the synagogue, verse 8, believed in the Lord with all his house, with all his house. Sometimes we read right through that and don't really think about the impact of that. Do I, as we asked before, do I have enough influence on my household that they would believe and have their own faith as well and believe in the Christ? Many of the Corinthians, verse eight, hearing believed and were baptized. And here we see three parts of the steps of salvation: hearing. They heard the word. They believed the word. And they were baptized. And then Paul, in a vision of the night, sees a vision. And what is this vision? Does he say, "Get out of Corinth"? Don't be afraid. Why do you think the spirit had to give him this vision? Could it be that Paul was afraid? You know, sometimes we have a more, maybe a cavalier attitude. Well, Christians should never be afraid. Should not never be afraid of anything. You always ought to be ready to go to heaven anytime. I don't think that's true. Why did the Holy Spirit have to come to Paul and tell him, don't be afraid, if he wasn't afraid? So don't be afraid, verse 9, but speak and hold not your peace. I think the reassurance that Paul is getting here from this vision is enough that he's going to stay in Corinth for how long a period of time? A year and a half. Verse 10, he continue, continues, For I am with thee, and no man shall settle thee to harm thee. Or I have much people in this city. He dwelt there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 10, the last part of verse 10, I find quite interesting. If we think about the ungodliness that is rampant in the city of Corinth, The last part of verse 10 says how many people were in this city that were open-minded. How much good soil is in this city? Apparently a lot. We would look at a city like this and say, we would assign it, oh, it's just so ungodly and immoral. There's nobody there that wants to listen to the gospel. That's a tendency we have, and... uh, Paul was told, no, there's many people in this city that will be open-minded and will listen to the gospel. Now, I want you to pause there with me, and let's dig a little deeper in this thought about the Spirit coming to Paul and giving him reassurance. The the term Holy Spirit or the Spirit is found in the book of Acts at least 55 times. That's not including the times such as this or where we see the Macedonian man that says, hey, come and help us, where the, the term spirit may not necessarily be used, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit in some word or fashion is mentioned 55 times in the book of Acts. And I say that only to say that the Holy Spirit is very, very active in the book. The Holy Spirit is guiding all of the action, on all of the work that is going on, he's guiding. That's what Jesus left him for. He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth, to remind you of the things that I've said. And that's exactly what we're seeing just unfold before our eyes in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is, is doing his work. He's doing it through men, but he is doing his work. All right, let's pause there uh, to go back to our outline. The city of Corinth covers basically verse 1 through 17. Paul lives and works with Aquila and Priscilla. He breaks with the Jews beginning about verse 5. He taught Jesus as the Christ there. Many Corinthians believed when we were baptized. We saw at Crispus at his household also believed the ruler of the synagogue of all people. And we have this vision of reassurance that he is given to continue on without fear. And then he dwelt for a year and a half there. Uh, Any thoughts or comments up to verse 11? All right. Let's go on over to verse 12. Gallio, we're introduced to a man named Gallio who is proconsul. He's the leader in this region of Achaia. Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, the Holy Spirit has already said, Don't be afraid. <clears throat> but Paul has a dilemma. The Holy Spirit didn't say you will have absolutely no problems whatsoever. City. They brought him before the judgment seat, and in that day and time, the judgment seat, particularly here, was out in the open, out, you might say, in the city streets. They put you on a platform and try you before the, the, all the bystanders. They would come by and they would see you on trial. So here you'd have just anybody that could come and see, come and witness this, this event. They brought him before the judgment seat. In verse 13, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Contrary to what law? What law are they talking about? They're talking about the law of Moses, aren't they? Does Galileo have jurisdiction over the law of Moses? Does he care for that particular law book? No. Verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio interrupted. He said, I know you Jews have a law. If it's a matter of civil law, I think he's saying I would interject my thoughts and my judgment. But it's a matter of this religious law you have, law of Moses. That's a law for the Jews. This has nothing to do with my jurisdiction. O Jews, he continues, verse 14, O you Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if you're a question, if there are questions about words and names and your old law, look to it yourselves. I'm not minded to be a judge of these matters. So he drives them from the judgment seat. All they, and some of your versions might use the term verse 17, all the Greeks would insert that. All the Greeks or all they that If we could imagine the bystanders and those that were there, maybe just curious witnesses of what's going on, all they laid hold upon Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. And perhaps it is that at this point in time, Crispus has now given up that, become a Christian, verse 8, he believed and was baptized, he gave that up. Now we have a different ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes. They beat him before the judgment seat and take out their anger and their frustration and their mob mentality finds its resting place in him. Sosthenes, he's the ruler of the synagogue. They beat him before the judgment seat and Galileo, what did he say? What did he do? I have nothing to do with that. <clears throat> Galileo is another one of those people as Claudius, we see in verse uh, 3 or verse 2. I think Galileo is another one of those people that Luke just drops this name in. Partly to tell us the story, but I think also a part of that is that we can go back and we can authenticate the writings of Luke. We can authenticate these things that Paul... That Luke is telling us. I want you to listen, if you will, uh, a little bit of the history about this man named Gallio. And I only want to read this to help us realize this book is genuine and to uh, provide us one of those evidences, if you will, of the Bible and its truthfulness, its authenticity. In the reign of Emperor Claudius, they have found in about the year 1900, they pieced together a fragment from archaeology. The emperor there said in a letter to Lucius Gallio, my friend, and the proconsul Luccaea, not only did Luke record the name of Gallio accurately, but he also recorded his political office exactly as the emperor wrote, wrote in his letter. It goes on to say the importance of the Galileo inscription. Again, this was found about 1900. The importance of this Galileo inscription goes even deeper than this. This particular find shows how archaeology can give us a better understanding of the biblical text, especially in giving us dates and times that things happened. Because of this letter, it is, it is possible to date the time that Galileo was proconsul to about A.D. 51. A.D. 51, that would mean that Paul arrived in the city of Corinth about the year A.D. 49 to 50, somewhere thereabouts. Being able to date this part of Paul's work, we can get a good understanding of when Paul visited other churches during, during his missionary journeys. And not only that, but I'm going to go back and say we can authenticate that Galio was a real man and that he really ruled the area of Achaia that he was subject to Claudius, the emperor. And this was written about the time of A.D. 51. And how do we know that? Well, we go back to uh, study in history, and we understand that they put their proconsuls up in these positions many times to rule for about a year, for about a year's period of time. And it was A.D. 51 that they wrote. I find that quite interesting. So when we're reading the Bible, especially the book of Acts, there's so many facts that are given that we should not just run right over. We, sh- we don't need to gloss right over those, and they're there for a reason. They're there for a reason, and we could substantiate that Galileo today was really a ruler and that, that he was really a proconsul of Achaia and so forth. I find that very, very interesting and very uh, faith-building as well. Okay, before we get into uh, verse 18,
1: any thoughts on that section? Yes. I also found it interesting that uh, we read of Sosthenes here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul mentions that there's a Sosthenes with them. Whether it's the same one, Mm -hmm. who knows? But uh, if it was, they got the first one converted. If it was, they got the second one converted who best to really understand the Old Testament scriptures, maybe, than the ruler of the synagogue. I don't know if that was because they were book smart in the Old Testament or maybe it was more of a political office, I don't know. But um, I just thought that was interesting also that if it was the same guy, they converted two of these Mm -hmm. rulers and... uh, that just shows that the gospel can work on anyone who's And, and that's why
0: verse 10, the Spirit said, I have much people in this city. I have many people in this city. And uh, you just never know who is going to be pricked in the heart, do you? It would be easier for Paul, as many times as he's been refused and rejected by the Jews, to dismiss them all and say, well, they're all just so mired in the law of Moses, they don't want to hear. But he kept going back to the synagogues, didn't he? And uh, found fruit there. Not everybody believed, but some did, yes.
2: Yeah. Preacher of the gospel, just like everybody else, need food, clothing, and shelter. And as you stated, when he first got to uh, Corinth there, he worked with Priscilla and Aquila in making tents to provide for himself. But in verse... Five, after Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, he began devoting himself completely to the word. So something changed. Mm -hmm. So either he had already made enough funds to support themselves for a while, or Silas and Timothy maybe worked while he preached, or some church maybe provided support. Mm-hmm. If you read uh, the last chapter of the Philippian letter, Paul mentioned that they are, after he left Macedonia, the f- church at Philippi was the only one that communicated with him for a while. Mm-hmm. So it's likely that this year and a half while he was in Corinth that the church at Philippi and possibly others later provided that support mm-hmm. so he could devote himself fully to the preaching.
0: Yeah, perhaps Silas and Timothy brought that that bounty or or possessions to him. Yes. Very good. Yes. Um,
3: I just wanna say, um in verse um nine and ten, the reason that's important for Paul to know is when you're preaching, especially in difficult places where you know that your life or your freedom is at stake You can get a little afraid, especially if you're a preacher, because you're thinking, oh, are these people going to kill me, or should I continue, or or what? And the Holy Spirit said, you're not going to be harmed. You're not going to be touched. And so when we go to these other verses and we find out that he's let go and nothing happens to him, God kept his word, and God God, God knows that, if he makes a promise to you, he's going to keep it. Mm-hmm.
0: If you were <clears throat> expecting to be uh, a preacher and you read the book of Acts, it would not be a very, maybe not by men's terms, it would not be a very encouraging book to look at in some respects. But in others, it would be. Uh, the The gospel and the work in the gospel is never Pictured in such a way where it's made easy. Did we have another hand over here? It's never pictured that it's all easy. It's all rosy. It's it's going to be accepted and you're going to be lauded and praised everywhere you go. That's just not the work of the gospel, is it? Yes.
4: Another interesting thing about Galio, which uh, the Holy Spirit showed Paul how he would protect him, was that his brother was Seneca and those who may have studied uh, ancient history, remember Seneca uh, as one of the trustworthy advisors of uh, Nero during the time, but yet their withdrawal from the Jews and all of the incidents that they tried to uh, bring uh, into the matter politically were set aside by uh, here Galio, who was in position at the time. And uh, it it says uh, that uh, even before Paul opened his mouth, uh, that Gallio said, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna hear this. We're not gonna uh, conclude with this riot that you're that you're planning against Paul and the harm." So I think that was a great display of how the Holy Spirit works in uh, what I've always truly believed—mysterious ways to make the, the things happen that that are promised to come into being.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the is in verse nine and ten. And we see a little fulfillment of that in the next paragraph, don't we? Verse 12 through 17. That's a fulfillment of, of be not afraid. Because at the end, Paul is, Paul is brought before the judgment seat, before the city. But at the end, what happens? He, he is not, uh, not beaten, not in prison. In fact, they turn on Sosthenes. So it's kind of a fulfillment, as you say, of that promise the Holy Spirit is going to be with you, protect you, and take care of you during this period of time. All right, we'll continue now, verse 18. Verse 18, Paul, having tarried after this yet many days, took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sincrea, for he had a vow. So after being here many days, apparently these many days would be the year and a half that's mentioned in verse eleven. He goes to his his destination is Syria, and what is in Syria that he has interest? He's interested in going to Antioch, Syria. Syria is a region. And Antioch is that city that we call home base for these missionary journeys so he is going to Syria and he takes along with him Priscilla and Aquila now we were introduced to this couple in verse 2 and that's just simply an introduction we're going to see they have a much greater role in the work of the gospel here as we proceed with not only this chapter but the next chapter as well or or later on Uh, He, in verse 10, or verse 19, rather, they came to Ephesus. He left them there, that being Aquila and Priscilla, but he entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And They asked him to abide longer time. He did not consent, but he took his leave of them and said, I will return unto you after I uh, leave. I'm going to set sail from Ephesus. He's headed, as we said, to Syria. So Paul travels to Syria, particularly Antioch, He leaves Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus. Perhaps this is one of those situations where he finds that these people would fit well working with Ephesus. So he leaves them there and says, maybe he says, you need to stay here. You can do so much good here. Meanwhile, I'm going to go to Antioch to report back to the church. Paul promises to return. And at this point, you might say, verse 21 We have ended the second missionary journey. I don't know if your Bible gives you that indication, and sometimes it will and sometimes it won't, but verse 21 is the end of the second journey for all practical purposes. Verse 22 they land at Caesarea. He went up and saluted the church there and went down to Antioch. Who do we know, who have we read in this particular book that is from this area, Caesarea? Who? Simon? Okay. Who else? I'm I'm thinking somebody else. Philip. Philip. Uh, Go back to Acts chapter 10. The one I'm thinking of is the first Gentile convert. Cornelius is from Caesarea, and it may be that he's still there. Paul, on his journeys, is interested in stopping by churches to see the people, build them up. And maybe it is that Cornelius is there at Caesarea, stops there, builds them up, salutes the church there, goes on his way to Antioch, and then having spent some time there, very quickly it turns, verse 23, having spent some time there at Antioch, here he goes again. We don't know exactly how much time. I guess we could back into it if we want to, but, which I didn't do. But anyway, he spent some time there at Antioch reporting to the church. And then he's ready to go on another journey. So we might say that verse 23 begins our third missionary journey. We'll term it that way. Verse 23, having spent some time, he departed and went through the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, establishing all the disciples. So uh, this, this is some of the area that he had been through previously in their area of the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Now verse 24. Meanwhile, we're going to back, go back. We've, we've seen now what Paul is doing on his reporting to Antioch. We've seen that Aquila and Priscilla have been left there meanwhile to work. Paul goes to Antioch, he's going through Phrygia and Galatia. Meanwhile, we go back to Antioch and we're introduced now to a person named Apollos. Apollos is described a couple, two, or three different ways. And what are some of those ways that characterize not his race, but his work? He's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures, but there's a problem And it's a major, major problem, I would say. It's not a slight difficulty, a slight misinterpretation. This is a major, major problem that he has in his doctrine. Verse 24, he's an Alexandrian by race, an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus But he knew only up to what point. He knew only the baptism of John. We'll study more about that particular doctrine next week in chapter 19. But he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. We have a man here who is very influential, speaking boldly in the synagogue. And Priscilla and Aquila, verse 26, heard him. They heard the false doctrine and they took, uh, took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. And when he was minded to pass over into Achaia, the brethren encouraged him, being Apollos, and wrote to the disciples to receive him. When he was come, he helped them much that had believed through grace. And he powerfully confuted the Jews and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now this man, as we go back and think about Apollos, he's preaching boldly in the synagogue, Aquila and Priscilla here. They cannot stand by and listen to this false teaching. So they take Apollos aside and they teach him more accurately the word of God. I want you to think, for just a moment as we just stop and think about the work that a couple, a couple of godly people can do in the kingdom, particularly as we see here as they work together, a man and a woman who sits down with someone to study and to teach can do so much good. There's so much good that can be done there. A man might teach And a woman might see things that the man completely misses. That's happened. And that happens a lot. You could ask preachers, they'll tell you their wives help them in many situations. It's untold how many different situations a good couple can work together in the kingdom and have so much impact. They take him aside and they it doesn't appear that they berate him. It doesn't appear that they try to belittle him, but they explain the word of God more accurately. Now how does Apollos in turn respond to this correction? He repents. A man that's bold and mighty in the scriptures, well accepted by many, he is now corrected and what does he do? He listens, doesn't he? So when we see the description that Apollos in verse 24 is is an eloquent man, he's mighty in the scriptures, we could also add to that that he is a humble man. He is very humble, isn't he? He is so receptive to hear what the Word of God says and the truth is. And I would say that part of that is because he is mighty in the Scriptures, he's able to take those Old Testament Scriptures and connect them with what Aquila and Priscilla are saying. And he's able to connect that and make it make sense. And I see. So he repents. So I would add that he is a humble man, willing to change, willing to accept. He doesn't look at it and say, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I, I'm, I can't accept that. I've, I've gone around all these places and taught this. I can't change. But he does. Also, noteworthy in verse 27, he decided that he would go into Achaia. And part of Achaia is Corinth. In the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul mentions Apollos being there. And perhaps this is when He went. Remember Paul said, I planted and who watered? I planted and Apollos watered. Would Apollos have ever been able to water as he did had it not been for the good example of Aquila and Priscilla? What great work a woman and a man can do together in the kingdom. That's not the only way. But at times it is so beneficial, so profitable. I could go on and on about the benefits of that and situations in which it is profitable and beneficial. Any thoughts on Apollos or any part of this chapter at this point? Yes.
2: Okay,
0: I'm sorry, I got one.
2: I would just want to note that how that uh, they wrote the letter to the disciples at Corinth. So Aquila and Priscilla would, was here in Ephesus as well. And, of course, the brethren in Corinth would have been very familiar with them. So no doubt they were a part of those that wrote this letter. So when Apollos get there, they uh, endorsed him. You, you, you receive him. Mm-hmm. So there's an a example of where that kind of thing is done. And we mm-hmm. can do the same today
0: very good thing to do, uh, write, write letters and uh, <clears throat> letters of reference when you're moving some, from one place to another, which is what we're seeing. Apollos is moving from one place to another. He perhaps needs the letter of reference from uh, this church in Ephesus to go with him to Achaia. And uh, that's a very, very good example, as you said, for that to be done here. And uh, it helps Apollos out as well. Yes.
1: Uh, I I know that the Bible, the Scripture, is sufficient in the way it is, but it sure would be nice to see, to hear, first of all, how Apollos was preaching beforehand, and then to be there for that conversation with those three, Mm -hmm. see what what each person said and how, and then uh, how he changed that. That would be nice, too. But, you know, we we get enough from it, but it would be neat to, to know what was said there.
0: Yeah, it would be. Yes, I think we have one more back here.
3: I just wanted to say um, I've been in uh Aquila and Priscilla's place before where people are thinking that they're telling the truth when actually they don't know the whole truth. And it's it, you don't you don't make a public display about it. All you do is pull them aside and you you try to preach the truth to them. Because what I found especially in my case when I was in era the two people who took, who were reading scriptures to me, the wife looked at the husband and says, "I don't think she can read the scriptures. I don't think she understands what what the scriptures are saying." And she was absolutely right. And so, through three years, we went through it word by word, and mm-hmm. eventually learned how to how to correct that behavior and learned how to how to um, read the Bible. So With uh, Priscilla and Aquila teaching this man and helping this man, not only saved her soul, but that is what God's intention of the spreading of the gospel was. Was because he had good, good intentions. He just was misguided, and he did the right thing by repenting and later on becoming a very good gospel preacher.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, I want to finish with a note about the. want to back away from chapter 18 and look at, again, at the book of Acts uh, as a whole, what's going on in this area, what's going on in the Roman Empire. Roman Empire is a very, very strong empire. All this area that we've covered so far, and we'll cover later, is all taking place in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has a road system that is quite uh, advanced for this day and time which allows for the travel of the gospel, ease of the travel of the gospel. And that's something we're seeing here. Uh, There was, even though there was a lot of uh, problems, sometimes with a very strong rule such as Rome had, you have relative ease of spreading the gospel. And I'll compare it this way. Imagine if you were going to spread the gospel in the Ukraine right now. That would be kind of difficult because it's, chaos. It's absolute chaos there. It would be difficult to do, but when there's, even though there's an evil empire in place, at least it allows for some consistency and stability for travel and whatnot to take place. And that's what we're seeing as we back out and think about historically the book of Acts taking place at this day and time. I guess we better stop there. appreciate your participation.